In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, I've said it before, but I'll say it again. Happy Mother's Day to all of you mothers out there. Uh, It is a a wonderful day to celebrate the mothers in our congregation, the mothers in our lives. We are so thankful for all that you do. And as I was uh, preparing to preach this morning and thinking about the the texts that have been given to us, I was also thinking about mothers. And I was thinking about what are the hopes that a mother has for her children. It's probably hard to completely generalize that. But I think if if we think about it, I know a lot of mothers, I'm married to a mother, and I I have a feeling that I can sense some of the, the general hopes that mothers all over the world would probably have for their children. So things like health, for a good job or employment, for a strong marriage if their child gets married, for grandchildren, for protection from hardship and heartache, and for provision for their needs. I think those are kind of universal hopes that almost any mother would have for her children. But then I started thinking about Christian mothers, and what are the hopes that Christian mothers have for their children? And I think Christian mothers have those same hopes, but they also have a few extra hopes laid on top of that, perhaps even more important than those first hopes that we talked about. A Christian mother's hope would certainly include that their children would have faith in God, that they would come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. A Christian mother would have a desire to follow God's will for the lives of their children and would have a desire that God would keep their children out of sin. These are things that particularly a Christian mother would hope for her children. And there's a wonderful song uh, sung by Kristen Getty, called A Mother's Prayer. And in this song, it's, it's her prayer for her small children as she thinks about raising them and preparing them to go out into the world. She says, This world is not as it should be, but the Savior opens eyes to see all that's beautiful and true. Oh, may his light fill all you are and the jewel of wisdom crown your heart. This is my prayer for you. You'll travel where my arms won't reach as the road will rise to lead your feet on a journey of your own. May my mistakes not hinder you, but his grace remain and guide you through. This is my prayer for you. Take his hand and go where he calls you to. And whatever comes... Seek him with all your heart. This will be my prayer for you. And I think that's a beautiful way to capture a Christian mother's prayer for her children. Her hopes, her desire for these children as they grow in the knowledge and love of the Lord, and as eventually they're sent out into the world. Because there's a point in every mother's life when that happens. When their children are no longer with them, no longer right at home with them. And they have to be sent out into the world. And I'm sure, we haven't experienced that as a family yet, but I'm sure that when that comes, our prayer for our children will be very similar. We'll be praying that God would watch over them and protect them as they go out into the world and pursue God's call for their life. 
So all of this, I think, relates to today's gospel passage, where Jesus is praying to the Father for his disciples as he's preparing to leave them. To leave them in the immediate sense because he's about to be crucified and buried in the grave, but then 40 days later also to leave them in a bodily sense where he ascends up into heaven. This past Thursday was Ascension Day, when we celebrate every year how Jesus was ascended into heaven and now sits at God's right hand in glory. So what was it that Jesus prayed for his disciples as he was preparing to leave? It's not unlike what a mother, Christian mother, might pray for her children. First of all, this prayer talks a lot about the world. It talks a lot about the world. Right in the first verse that we read today, which starts us kind of halfway through this prayer, in verse 11, Jesus says, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, speaking of his disciples, and I am coming to you. So Jesus is preparing to go to the Father, but he's talking about the world, the world that he has been living in, the world that his disciples still live in and will continue to live in. What is this world? The Greek word here is cosmos. You've probably heard that word before. Sometimes we think of the the cosmos or cosmos as as everything that is, the entire universe. And, uh, And that was how the Greeks thought about it too. But in the New Testament, this world takes on a particular meaning to talk about all of humanity and particularly all of unredeemed creation. All of humanity and all of unredeemed creation. One commentator says the word cosmos has a sinister significance in the New Testament. It is not the world as God intended it to be, but this world set over against God following its own wisdom, and living by the light of its own reason, not recognizing the source of all true life and illumination. So when Jesus talks about the world, and we see it a lot in the Gospel of John, this is what he's talking about, about this sinister place, this world that's set against God, this unredeemed creation which has turned against God's original hopes and purposes for it. And this is the world where Jesus knows that his disciples will live. He's going to heaven. He's going to be with the Father. But his disciples will continue to live in this sinister place, this world. And one particular facet about this world is the ruler of this world. Three times in the Gospel of John, Jesus talks about the ruler of this world. Let's look at chapter 12 as an example of this. Here, Jesus is saying in uh, in verse 31 and 32, Now is the judgment of this world. Same word. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. The ruler of this world will be cast out. Who is this ruler of the world? It's Satan. 
Satan is the ruler of the world in this present time. When Jesus says the ruler of the world will be cast out, he's talking about the decisive victory that he is preparing to win at the cross. And in that decisive victory, until Jesus returns, this casting out will only be partially complete. We're looking forward to a time when it will be complete in its fullness, when the kingdom of God will be fully established. But in the meantime, we're living between the times. The ruler of this world is losing his hold on his power, but he's still the ruler of this world. And Jesus is still breaking in. And we're still hoping for that day when he'll return for us. So the ruler of this world is part of the reason why this world is sinister, why this world has so much evil in it. And the other part is our own sin. If you look back to the very beginning, when God made everything good, everything perfect, we see Satan in the form of the serpent tempting Adam and Eve, but he didn't make Adam and Eve sin. Adam and Eve chose to sin of their own volition. And they brought sin into the world, and we have followed in their pattern. This is what we mean by original sin. That we continue to be just like our first parents were. We continue to turn against God, to do things that he would prefer that we not do, because we're sinners. And so this world is sinister because of our sin, and it's sinister because of the ruler of this world. And Jesus says, this is the world that his disciples will live in. But then he goes on to say, in verse 16, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So Jesus says his disciples will be in the world, but they are not supposed to be of the world, just as Jesus is not of the world. Where did Jesus come from? He came from heaven. Where did Jesus return to? He returns to heaven. Jesus is not of the world. He is eternal from before time and for all ages. And he entered into the world to redeem the world, to redeem the people in the world. And so he leaves us as redeemed people in an unredeemed world in the world, but not of the world. Mother Carrie and I have been watching a a four-part documentary about a a school in India called Shanti Bhavan, which means abode of peace in Hindi. It's not a Christian school, but it's a remarkable school, and it was founded by a man named Dr. Abraham George, who was Indian himself and came and studied in America and built a career for himself in America, built a company for himself in America, and came to a place where none of that mattered to him. And so he sold it all, and he moved back to India, and he used those resources to build a residential school for people from the untouchable caste. Now in India, there's this this incredible uh, sinister racial divide where from the time of your birth, you are allotted a caste, and you can't move out of that caste. The Indian government today is trying to abolish this way of thinking, but it's still very much present in the culture. And the people from the untouchable caste do the most menial of work, and they earn the smallest amounts of pay. And most of these families live on less than $2 a day. And so in thinking about how he could change this, Dr. George 
decided that he would start this residential school where he would uh, welcome in children from the age of four years old and raise them until they're 18 years old and then put them through college to give them a chance in life. Not just a chance for themselves, but a chance to, uh, to bring their family into a new situation and a chance to begin changing the culture. But one thing that I thought was fascinating about this story is that even though they weren't discipling these children to be Christians because it's not a Christian school, they were raising them in a way of life that was very different from the culture around them. The school is on a residential compound surrounded by a fence, and the only people the children interact with each and every day are each other and the staff of the school, their teachers. And the only time they leave that compound is two times a year when they go home to be with their families for a two-week vacation. And as you can imagine, when they go home to be with their families, there's a tremendous amount of culture shock. And there's even more culture shock when they finally leave the compound at 18 years old and go out into the world to engage in college. For the first time in their lives, they have to do everything on their own. They have to find a place to live. They have to figure out how to study without someone watching over them. They have to figure out how to to keep themselves uh, disciplined towards the goals that they have for themselves. And this is shocking to these students. And in the same way, this world is a shocking place to us as Christians. This world is a shocking place for us as Christians. Because this world doesn't share our values. This world doesn't share our faith in Jesus Christ. This world doesn't share our trust in the living God who watches over us and protects us. This world is also a shocking place because the world can sometimes be unwelcoming to us. Jesus says in verse 17, not verse 17, Jesus says in verse 14, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. The world is a shocking place because oftentimes it hates us because of the things that we talk about, because of the way that we behave. We shine as light in the darkness, and the world prefers the darkness. We speak the truth into the midst of lies, and the world prefers the lies. And when we speak against the darkness, sometimes the darkness pushes back on us. And so it can be hard to live in this world because the world does, in fact, hate us sometimes. So this brings to mind a question to me. Why doesn't God just take us out of the world? I mean, that would be an easier situation, wouldn't it? We become a Christian and boom, we're out of there. Christian, go to heaven. Christian, go to heaven. That would be pretty awesome, wouldn't it? We get to be with God. We wouldn't have the pressures of the world around us. We wouldn't have sin around us. We wouldn't be tempted to sin anymore. That'd be pretty awesome. Why doesn't God just do that? Why doesn't he just take us out of the world? He doesn't take us out of the world for a very important reason. We are in the world because of those who are still of the world. We are in the world because of those who are still of the world. 
There are so many people in this world who don't know Jesus. There is so much unredeemed humanity. And if the moment you became a Christian, you were taken immediately to heaven, who would be there to share the love of Jesus with the other people? Who would be there to spread God's kingdom into more and more hearts who don't yet love him? God has us in the world for the sake of those who are still of the world. One commentator, Dr. Rod Whitaker, who's a friend of mine and a a New Testament professor at the seminary where I, I used to work, says this. He says, because the disciples have God's truth, they are set apart and sent into the world just as Jesus was. Like him, they are to be in the world, but not of it, judging and calling the world by being the presence of God's light, bearing witness to his love and offering his life in the midst of the world. In the second to last verse from the gospel today, Jesus says, As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. As you have sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. And that means that each and every one of you is a person who's sent. Sent to do what? Sent to share the love of Jesus with the world, with all of unredeemed humanity, with all of the cosmos. That was Jesus' mission. He came into the world to bring the light of himself into the world. And he's left us here in the world to continue sharing that light with others, bringing light into the darkness. And so because of this, we're always walking on a bit of a tightrope, aren't we? Have you ever seen a tightrope act? Sometimes they they stretch a tightrope clear across Niagara Falls, and you can just imagine these people, if you've ever been to Niagara Falls, trying to walk on this, this tiny little wire of a cable. If you go this way, it's certain death. If you go that way, it's certain death. And so you have to just stay on that that tightrope, walking step by step to get to where you're trying to go. And that kind of a tightrope situation is what we're living in. Because we are supposed to be in the world, but not of the world. We don't want to be corrupted by the world, but we also can't be so withdrawn from it that we're unable to share the love of Jesus with those who don't know him. It can be tempting to preserve ourselves by building up walls of defense, brick by brick, building a fortress around us to protect us from the world, to keep the influences of the world out and to keep us out of the world. But to do that is to disobey Jesus' purpose for us because he said we're supposed to be in the world. And yet we're not supposed to be corrupted by the world. So how do we do this? How do we live in the world, but not become like the world or of the world? Well, Jesus has an answer for that too, and it's also a part of his prayer. In verse 17, he says, he prays, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. When he says sanctify, he says what it means is is to set apart or to make holy, to preserve, 
to carve out a special purpose for. The temple was holy because it was set apart for the holy purpose of the worship of God and for sacrifice to God. The priests of the temple were made holy, set apart for the particular service of offering sacrifices in that temple. And Jesus is asking God to make us holy, to set us apart for a special purpose, the purpose of mission, the purpose of sharing God's love with the world. So that's what we mean when we say sanctify them in the truth. But then he says, your word is truth. And when he's talking about word here, he's not talking about scripture in particular. He's talking about himself. If you look at the very first verse of the Gospel of John, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is that Word. He is the image of the invisible God. He is God's actual face in humanity, in the world, in the cosmos. He is the enfleshed revelation of God to the world. And so Jesus is saying, sanctify them in the truth. And your word is truth, and he's talking about himself. We have to be sanctified in Jesus. We have to be set apart in Jesus to be preserved from this world. Jesus' prayer is that the Father would keep us from the evil one, keep us from being stained by the world, keep us connected to him. And the image here is not unlike where Jesus says in another part of the Gospel of John that I am the vine and you are the branches. And then he says, abide in me. If you take a branch off of a vine, it quickly withers and dies because it's no longer connected to the source of its life. And that's what we need to do. We need to be connected to Jesus always. That connection to him is the thing that will keep us in the world, but not of the world, that will preserve us, that will guide us, that will strengthen us, and help us to accomplish that which God has called us to. And God is able to do this because Jesus ascended into heaven, and because he's seated at the right hand of the Father. Think about it for a moment. Jesus' mission was to redeem the whole world, to disciple the whole world. How could he do that if he was limited to one body in one space in one century in Palestine 2,000 years ago. It's really hard to be in more than one place at once. I've tried, and I, it doesn't work very well. Every time I try to be in more than one place at, at once, I can only seem to be in that one place. By ascending into heaven, Jesus sends his Holy Spirit into the world, and now God lives inside each believer. God's presence lives in me, and God's presence lives in you. We'll talk about this more next week on the Feast of Pentecost. But Jesus ascended into heaven so that his Holy Spirit could live in our hearts. And that's how we maintain our connection to him, the source of our life, the one who preserves us and guides us. In chapter 8 of the Gospel of John... Jesus talks more about this word and this truth. In verse 31 of chapter 8, he says, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, 
and the truth will set you free. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Will set you free from what? A little further down, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Literally, everyone who practices sin is in bondage. They're shackled to sin. They can't help themselves. But then he says, the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. That's what Jesus does for us. He frees us from that slavery. He frees us from those shackles. He allows us to live for God instead of live in bondage to the world and to the sin that we're so attached to. And he sends us into the world with keys to help unlock the shackles of other people so that they might find life in him too. They might find freedom in him too. If you ever feel that you're a slave to sin and to the world, remember that there is hope in Jesus. He is the one person who can truly set you free. So let's come back to mothers. Mothers, there is no better place to entrust your children than into the Father's arms. Because this is what Jesus did for his disciples. He entrusted his disciples into his Father's arms. And so whenever you worry for your children, whenever you wonder what they're up to, whenever you are fearful of what they'll face in the world, entrust them to the Father's arms. Pray for them. Maybe even use this prayer that Jesus prayed for his disciples. And for everyone else, I don't know your mother's hopes and prayers for you, but I do know Jesus' prayers for you. He wants you to be freed by truth. He wants you to be in this world, but not of it. And he wants you to have a deep relationship with him because he loves you. And so I want to remind you, as we close, of perhaps the most famous verse of Scripture, which also happens to be from the Gospel of John. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your prayer for us. We thank you for preserving us in this world. And we pray, Lord, that you would continue to preserve us, that you'd help us to stay connected to you, that you'd help us to be in this world but not of the world, and that you'd make us lights to those around us, lights shining in the darkness, that the light of your love might enter into every heart. And those who don't know you would come to know you. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.